0: It's Friday, February 4th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Health experts are urging continued caution, though Maryland's COVID-19 rates continue to go down. Governor Hogan and Mayor Scott hold a closed-door meeting in Annapolis to discuss violent crime. Democrats and Republicans clash over a proposed crime package. And the president and CEO of the Maryland Food Bank says even as the pandemic dies down, food insecurity continues. It's The Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response, and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Maryland's COVID hospitalizations are below 1,400. 80 patients were released from the hospital in the past 24 hours, according to the State Department of Health. The state positivity rate is also steadily going down. It's now at 6.7%. Despite the declining positivity rate, health experts at Johns Hopkins University say Maryland residents shouldn't start their post-pandemic celebrations just yet. Health experts gathered to discuss Maryland's 30-day state of emergency, which ended yesterday. But doctors said everyone still needs to be careful, and they stressed continue testing and contact tracing, as well as vaccinations, as ways to continue reducing the spread of the virus. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott and Governor Larry Hogan held a closed-door meeting in Annapolis yesterday to discuss violent crime in the city. Speaking to reporters after the meeting, Mayor Scott said they talked about ways to strengthen their already strong partnerships. In a tweet, Hogan also described their discussion as productive on a number of fronts. The meeting came on the heels of Hogan's last State of the State address Wednesday night in which he slammed Baltimore City for its violent crime rate and, in his words, not prosecuting enough violent criminals. Olivia Schnitzer, the city's deputy mayor for public safety, is leaving her position to work at the Department of Justice. Mayor Scott said yesterday that he plans to fill Schnitzer's position with someone just as talented who understands the city's current public safety issues. The mayor's office has recently lost several top staff members, including Communications Director Calvin Harris. Food insecurity may be affecting one out of three Marylanders as a result of the pandemic, according to the Maryland Food Bank. And with high inflation, supply chain disruptions, and COVID variants, economic recovery for many may be tough. Carmen Delguecho is the president and CEO of the Maryland Food Bank. He spoke with us about the challenges facing his organization and the bumpy recovery ahead. Mr. Delguecho, can you give us a general idea of where your organization is as we begin 2022, yet another year of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, another year of the pandemic and another year of high demand. levels kind of, you know, we've been around for 40 something years. Uh, I would venture to guess these are uh, demand levels have probably never been higher in our in our history. We have done a number of, did a lot of analysis over the course of the pandemic. And we estimated at one point that 2 million had the had to be suffering from food insecurity during the height of the pandemic. So that's one in three that a lot of people like felt like that was really kind of a high number, but uh, we have seen given the amount of volume of food we've distributed, that seems to be a, a, an accurate number. And actually most recently did a little polling survey that confirmed it, that 33% of the people we talked to were suffering from food insecurity. So demand continues to be high.
0: 2 million, you said, are food insecure in Maryland alone. Yeah, that's nearly
1: one in three, exactly.
0: How has the demand for your services changed since the pandemic began?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think back to March of 20, we got shot out of a cannon, right? Demand went through the roof almost immediately. And the pace of, of distribution and need out there was, was tremendous. Um, and then over the course of the last couple of years, it has stayed at an elevated level. Um, despite the fact that there's been a number of government supports and other things that have come on board to try to help ease the burden off on folks, we have continued to see uh, levels of demand being um, extremely high. And the outlook is that it will continue to stay high. We just recently surveyed our network of partners across the state who distribute work and uh, food in the local communities. And that survey indicated that 68% of our partners anticipated demand to actually increase in the months to come. So, uh, so it's really, uh, it's really kind of continue to stay at a significantly high level.
2: Hmm.
0: What have been your main challenges so far during the pandemic? And what are you anticipating in this coming year? I mean, you mentioned that food insecurity is expected to grow, actually.
1: Yeah, I mean, our main challenges are to keep up with the level of demand. Um, You know, over the first 15 months of this pandemic, we distributed over enough food to provide 84 million meals, that's a 70% increase over our previous period. So the demand was significantly high and our ability, really our focus has been to try to respond as much as we can. We've had to do that by buying more food than we ever have. Going into the pandemic in a typical year, we would buy 12 million pounds of food. And frankly, we pay about 45 cents a pound for that 12 million pounds. Today we're buying over 30 million pounds and paying nearly 80 cents a pound. So almost three times the volume of purchasing at nearly double the cost. So that's one of our, has been one of our biggest challenges and will continue to be one of our biggest challenges going forward. The other has been distribution. We've had to modify our distribution methods, obviously to allow for uh, social distancing, uh, low touch uh, type of interactions. And so uh, our ability to continue to find creative ways to reach as many managers as we can to ensure that we're there for them uh, in the years, in the months and years to come will also be one of our challenges that we'll continue to face.
0: Are there specific like subgroups of people that are more difficult to reach, um, to get food to?
1: Well, we know that there are certain communities around the state that have been hit harder by the pandemic than others. We think about, you know, uh, we think about seniors and teams of who are homebound. We think about uh, communities of color where who were disadvantaged going into the pandemic, and now some of that were exacerbated. Uh, we think about rural markets where, you know, um, uh, transportation challenges are, and, and, uh, exist. So... Uh, you know, we're a statewide organization dealing with communities, you know, of all shapes and sizes, so the, the challenges uh, vary, but in uh, and, and every community has felt this, um, the impact of this uh, uh, in some way, shape or form.
0: Obviously, in a few months, you know, we might be facing another surge or we might be, you know, we might be seeing this pandemic die down. I mean, some health experts are hoping optimistically that this is a ter- this has been a turning point, the latest surge, given that, you know, that. End might be near, or that sort of fading away of the pandemic might be near. How do you think food scarcity will look then?
1: Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, clearly the pandemic is not over. We've gone through this most recent uh, this most recent variant, and that's certainly caused a caused a a lot of activity. So we're still dealing with the pandemic as we speak. When you look back to the last, you know, an economic downturn of 2008 to 10. Food banks like ours felt the effects of that in terms of demand for five to six years uh, after that uh, recession was over. And so it took that long for the need to get back to pre-recession levels. Our hope is that it won't take that long this time around. I think a lot of the ex- experts out there tend to indicate that the recovery here will be a lot faster. But when that's going to happen, how long it'll take uh, really is, is remains to be seen. We anticipate again, that we think the need is gonna continue to kind of a high well above pre-COVID levels, and we're gonna be and we are prepared in building our response to ensure that we're there for that increased need for an extended period of time. But you know, government supports will play a big role in this as well. I mean, some of those supports have helped along the way, and you know, some of many of them have gone away. So um, those that also will impact the speed of this recovery as well as you know, economic factors. So that's the million dollar question is when it how long will this take to ultimately wind down and how long do we need to be prepared? to respond. And our outlook right now is that will be doing, we'll be dealing with it for months and perhaps years to come.
0: Could you clarify the governmental support that you mentioned? Um, what sort of support systems were you relying on earlier in the pandemic? And is there similar kind of support you're expecting um, or hoping for? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's a great question. Government supports played a pretty big role during the course of the pandemic. If you think about um, enhanced unemployment benefits, you think about stimulus checks, you think about uh, eviction moratoriums, you think about expanded SNAP benefits; those are various responses that government uh, implemented during the course of the pandemic. That our data tells us that those things did have an impact, uh, but more of a short-term impact. They really didn't create long-term systemic um, uh, uh, change for folks in need. And so, um, going forward, you know, to the extent that those programs still exist, those programs remain in place for an extended period of time, could potentially alter the curve of the need going forward. Uh, child tax credit is a great example. That's an example of a, of a program now that was no longer is no longer in place, and government data indicated that of the recipients of that child tax credit, one in two uh, recipients were using a portion of those funds on food. Now that program is going away, so clearly that need has got to be filled by some other in some other way, and that's where I think the burden of of will be on our organization. So government supports have play a key role in, in muting demand, if you will, even though it was our demand was high, what it looks like going forward to remain to be seen and and, and what what role the government can play to ensure that people who are suffering could have uh, some level of support will be critical.
0: You were talking about how those supports were generally quite temporary. They were helpful for a time, but not, you know, overhauling systemic barriers to food for a lot of people. Um, In your view, what are some ways we can change this on the whole systemically um, to make food, you know, more equitably distributed?
1: Yeah, I do think um, the, I think this child tax credit uh, was one area that I think had good long-term potential in terms of impact. Uh, Clearly families who were struggling to make ends meet, uh, who were actually, you know, have the ability to provide for for the families, lift them out of poverty, that seemed to have a really good long-term potential impact to uh, helping folks who were serving today to potentially become more self-sufficient um clearly wage pressures that you know market driven wage pressures will be another area where people who potentially who are working today but aren't able to make ends meet perhaps could be in a position where they could uh provide for the families if if, if we see some increase in minimum wage and things like that that ultimately provide some additional levels mm-hmm. of support so i think there are some areas that uh, that that government can play a role in helping lift the families uh, so they are in a better position to provide for themselves we will have to be focused on providing more more support than just food. We have access to folks who are coming to our pantries every day in search of food, but ultimately are coming because there's some root cause that they're having to, uh, that they have that's caused that situation. So we think we're uniquely positioned to hopefully provide uh, access to other services that people need to help them become food secure. Whether that's workforce development programs, whether that's transportation solutions, whether that's um, housing or health uh, uh, childcare, We won't provide those solutions directly, but we'll provide access to them by bringing more nonprofit organizations, more service providers into our network so that they can provide these solutions to uh, folks that we're serving every day.
0: And what can regular, you know, everyday Marylanders do to support your organization and help you make those solutions possible?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, financial support still is a critical component. Um, We have tremendous buying power. And so, to the extent that we are, um, that we will continue to have uh, additional need that we're going to need to meet, we're going to have to bu- continue to buy uh, enormous amounts of food. And so, our um, folks who donate to the Mountain Food Bank, that dollar goes a lot further than what could go if they were to buy the food themselves and donate the food directly. So, our buying power allows us to buy more food. And then, our expertise and knowledge of the communities we serve allows us to ensure we're buying the right food. Uh, nutrition wise and culturally for the communities we serve so financial support still has the longest term impact on our ability to serve the other beauty of the financial support a lot of folks would say hey i'd love to really support organizations in my local community but well, we're a statewide organization The dollars that we raise and the food we buy goes to every community across our state so you will still be supporting your local your local pantries and your local organizations um, with regard to uh, the food access We also are extending a significant amount of grants to partners all across the state so they can be um, more efficient and effective in their reach. So that's another uh, value to financial support for the Maryland Food Bank that some of those dollars not only deployed in the form of food, but also in the form of grants so our partners can be as effective as they can be. So that's the best way I think people can help us both today and tomorrow.
0: Mr. Deguacho, is there anything that you want to add before we let you go?
1: The state, in addition to some of these... um, programmatic responses have been very supportive in terms of financial support for our work. And so um, you know to continue that kind of public-private partnership, if you will, in the sense of the state continue to make investment into the Maryland Food Bank so that we can continue to buy the food we need to buy, we can continue to support our local, our local community partners, we can also do the work we need to do with regard to addressing root causes. Additional state support is another way that a states and government can help uh, in this effort. So not in addition to terms, not, not only related to specific programmatic response, but also to provide financial support themselves to organizations like ours who have tremendous reach.
0: Carmen Delguecho is the CEO and president of the Maryland Food Bank. Mr. Delguecho, thank you so much for your time.
1: I enjoyed it. Thank you, Sarah.
0: Democratic senators unveiled their crime package Thursday morning and Senate Republicans gave a swift response in their own press conference. The dueling partisan showdown came on the heels of Governor Hogan touting his anti-violent crime package Wednesday night in his final state of the state address. WYPR's Joel McCord reports.
2: The Democrats' package centered on what they called prevention, intervention, transparency and rehabilitation. Senate President Bill Ferguson said it isn't about a single bill but an all-encompassing effort to reduce violence. What we need is a coordinated plan at all levels of government, and the Senate leadership is here today saying that we are putting forward the framework and the resources. Baltimore County Police Chief Andre Davis, who took part in the Democrats' press conference, said afterward Maryland needs a wraparound package to deal with increasing crime. I mean, we need communication with other law enforcement agencies. We need the health department. We need other agencies to really help and, and stronger legislation to help prosecute and put the necessary people away and provide services to prevent these types of crimes from happening. One piece of that is a move to ban what are known as ghost guns. They can be made from kits sold on the internet and have no serial numbers, which makes them impossible to trace. Attorney General Brian Frosch said they are becoming the guns of choice for young people who can't buy a gun without an adult and for convicted felons who couldn't buy a gun legally. This is how they get guns, and and, there have been searches and seizures all over the country where they've busted gang members and found they've got a stockpile of ghost guns. Why? It's the easiest way to do it. The Democrats' package also contains efforts to improve behavioral health and children's mental health services and beef up the division on parole and probation. It would provide risk assessments for parolees, better record keeping, raises, and apprentice programs to try to fill the nearly 150 vacancies in the department. Ferguson said they need to get more people in the division to avoid case overloads and to make sure they're properly trained. Uh, we got to make sure that those who are reentering have the skills that they need, be it educational skills, social skills, um, and this is the job of parole and probation. They are not just an entity that is charged with checking boxes. They are a critical part of the criminal justice system. They agreed with the governor in his call for judicial and prosecutorial transparency to track how judges and prosecutors handle certain cases. Though Will Smith, the Montgomery County Democrat who chairs the Judicial Proceedings Committee, says there may be some differences in how they do that. But essentially what the bill would do is allow an individual, you, me, and everyone else, uh, to have synthesized information
1: to understand how judicial decision-making is happening and what's happening, what the dispositions are. Uh,
2: by circuit so throughout the state you'd be understand which jurisdictions are making what decisions and why Republicans however dismissed the Democrats package as woke progressive ideas Senator Robert Castley of Harford County said it fails to deal with the immediate problems of repeat violent offenders being freed on parole we've got probation agents looking out for people who are violent offenders violent repeat offenders who have not learned their lesson have not shown any any, any, any remorse for their crime, have not proven that they're willing to move on and, and readjust their lives. It can't succeed like that. Brian Simonair, the Senate Republican leader, said the package reminds him of a magic show.
1: When the magician says, look over here, look over here, and don't really focus on the main issue. And that's what we're seeing with the Democrats with their solution. They're nibbling around the edges and ignoring the immediate and pressing needs of out-of-control
2: crime. They argued instead for the tough-on-crime, tougher sentencing measures the governor has called for. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News.
0: We cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? Leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number, 410-235-6060. We've also got a button on the WYPR app so you can record a voice memo that way too. Just tap Daily Dose Comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410 235 Six zero six zero. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Monday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my colleagues on the WYPR News Team: Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan, and Callan Tanzel-Suddith. Our digital content director is Jamila Krempel, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of the Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.